Hello and welcome to episode 31 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Phoenix, Arizona, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. I'm back. Um, missing a week last week was a nightmare that I was living in, but now I'm living in the nightmare that is 115 degree Phoenix, Arizona. Shane, would you say it's, uh, is it Phoenix or mono red Phoenix right now? Man, it is mono. I, okay, Dave, I walked outside and, and some wind blew across me this evening, right? And I was like, oh, a delightful wind, but no, it is hotter. The wind, it's like, it's like blowing a, like a fire gun upon me. I'm in Mega Man 2 and Heat Man is blasting me just that good hot hot air get a little rig that you wear around your neck with a small fan blowing in your face <laughs> you I mean, know those rigs yeah. you could build it out of pvc pipes are you talking is about rig, dune? is this a dune reference of some kind yeah they kind of had those in dune didn't they yeah the space must flow they had suits where they drank pee too but oh, well i hmm. also with us here in chicago it's the godfather of suits dave harberger Talk about hot air, huh? Here I am. <laughs> Bazinga. Last but not least, it's the warden, Zach Colhan. We're looking into plans to open our next wing in Denver, Colorado, so keep an eye out for that. On this week's episode, we look at Toby Henke's metagame breakdown from GP Dallas along with the modern MCQ that took place in Krakow. Then we dive into the way we, the co-hosts of the Dive Down, are choosing decks for the modern MCQ at GP Denver this weekend where you can all watch us go 3-3 and then party at the prize wall. Finally, we wind down with a listener question. But first, we've got a house to keep. Big thank you and welcome to the newest patrons in the Dive Down Nation. Shoutouts this week go to Kevin S., Ryan H., Jeff B., Jonathan S., Alex W., and Michael M. Also, thanks to Train for moving their support up a tier. That means a lot to us, too. And another shout-out goes to Grantus Mantis for the kind review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it very, very much. But with all that out of the way, let's hop over to Zach at the news desk, coming in live from Krakow? I am in scenic Krakow right now, and it's just, what a beautiful city. So to quote the Channel Firebar article about the event, the top eight was diverse, with eight different deck types represented. Dredge, Is it Phoenix, Odrasi Tron, Jund, Humans, Titan Breach, Mardu Pyromancer and Tron, Mono Green. So there were eight different decks in this top eight, with two of them being Tron by different varieties. So we can go through right now and I'll read who placed where and any interesting deck choices or uh, card choices they had. So in first place, we had Tomasz Sodermiski, who is Sodek on MTGO on Dredge. So hey, a guy we've mentioned a few times on this podcast. Yeah, we're big fans of Sodak for sure. Yeah, he's an extremely quality player when uh, hogak vine was around he switched over to it just simply for the power level of it but he quickly went back to to dredge here and it's awesome that he finally finished something off he's got a lot of high finishes in the past and he just you know he spiked this one zach what did you notice in this one so there is a singleton hogak which is pretty neat for a dredge deck uh, we talked recently about if dredge and hogak might eventually just fuse into one powerful graveyard deck yeah i i think it's a good call here i think that just having a singleton doesn't really dilute the deck's game plan at all it doesn't dilute the the dredge deck's engine and i think in order to support it he looks like he upped the golgari thugs to three um, which is important for 
convoking the Hogak. And you know, Thug's typically a two of, sometimes even a one of, when Dark Blast is considered more potent in the metagame and you want to kind of run uh, two Dark Blasts main. But this let deck, this deck has no main deck Dark Blasts in order to support those three Golgari Thugs. And then it shaves a prize to Malgum, it seems, to get the Hogak on the list. Yeah, I wonder if cutting interaction is worth it when you can resolve an 8-8 Trample. That's a good point. That's a good point. The sideboard also had a few interesting inclusions. There was a Thoughtseize in there, a couple of them, which is interesting, as well as a Shenanigans, which is, as I mentioned before, a very powerful card that I think is just going to be a staple from now on. I mean, I think you're kind of overlooking the perhaps most interesting one. They got the most questions on in like the Dredge Facebook groups and stuff, which is the Singleton Leilai of Sanctity. So I think that with the London Mulligan now being you know the, the rule, you can try to find those singleton silver bullets if you want. And so Leyline's really good against hand disruption, against you know targeted graveyard hate like Tormod's Crypt, Ravenous Trap, Nihil Spellbomb. It's going to be good against Burn, Mono Red Phoenix, or you know Phoenix decks that want to win from Aria triggers. So I think that it's pretty clever. It's, a, it's not a bad choice. I think I remember him saying he brought it in against any deck where he, he saw Rav Traps for sure. So what do you guys feel about single ley lines? I, I know we touched on this a little bit in one of the previous episodes, but it's still really hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of using anything less than like two or three at the bare minimum. Since, I mean, yeah, you get to mulligan for seven, you know, look at seven cards every time you mulligan, but it still feels like your odds of actually finding it in a opening hand are pretty low when you've only got the one in your 60 or 75. No, I agree. Like that's something that dredge players were doing even before the London Mulligan, which is kind of running like a singleton leyline of the void, where it's like if I draw it, great. If I don't draw it, it's not going to hurt me. I think in a deck like dredge, where so much of your deck is going into the graveyard and you're not drawing it off the top, essentially, you don't kind of have that top deck risk where like late game you top deck that leyline and it's like crud. What am I going to do with this? In second place, we had Julian Regal on Is It Phoenix? And the interesting choice here was two Alpine Moons in the side. I, I've been seeing Alpine Moons and Phoenix sides like for a while now. I, I think, Zach, we talked about this a little bit on Slack today. I wonder if it has something to do with giving more decks the option to do something akin to a turn one Blood Moon and shutting off some fetching. It's still questionable how effective that would be for me personally, since Alpine Moon still lets those lands tap for Wooburg. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like it helps against Valakut. Some of the lands in Titan, Creature Lands, Tron. It's okay against Tron, but yeah. I think Tron can still Nature's Claim or whatever else they want to do. I think it's definitely there as a turn one play against Tron. At least in my uh, experience with playing Is a Phoenix. The Alpine Moon showed up a good amount back towards the end of last year when the deck was first being played, and Tron was much more kind of high on the list of decks. And um, you know when Phoenix was not in its complete you know killer form that it is right now. So Alpine Moon definitely helps a little bit against Tron. It gives you a turn one play, something that can hobble them for a couple of turns long enough for you to come come to life and uh, get them get them with a bunch of birds. So um, I, I think that's mostly what it's for. I think it sleds in so nicely against Tron because it hits that maximum we talk about where you, if you slow them down, you deploy pressure. So you can do turn one Alpine Moon into turn two Thing in the Ice into a turn three, possibly flip Thing in the Ice and a bird, which is really what you have to do against a deck like Tron, which is going to present that inevitability. 
One of the other things that I find interesting in this is at Phoenix Sideboard is the Sahili Sublime Artificer. And I'm curious whether any of you have played against Sahili or played with the Sahili Sublime Artificer because I keep seeing her pop up in a variety of sideboards, especially decks that have access to blue or red, not always is it Phoenix. But I've never seen her in action. I've never even heard anyone talk about her. And I'm kind of struggling to assess how viable a card like this is. I think it's a definite sideboard card that's showing up in these blue red spells decks and also red spells decks so it's also showing up in mono red phoenix i think it's basically a way to convert a non-graveyard reliant way for you to convert spells into additional threats is what i think the, the goal is here with sahili and so it can let you make a wide board based off your cantrips if for some reason you can't use aria flame or something like that instead um, and also if your phoenixes suddenly get bad because of a certain matchup so now how good it is at that is a little less clear because i haven't ever played with it but i've played against it a couple of times and i haven't found it to be much more than a, a little bit of a stumbling blocker i just i just have killed it really fast and then moved on with my own plan Dave, I totally agree with that. I've played against it in prison a number of times, and I found that every time it got close to doing something good for the opponent, I had a bridge, I had a board wipe, or I had an answer, and it definitely bought them more time, but it never felt like it was enough to actually close out a game. Yeah, I mean, I might be wrong about what the tech is for exactly. Like, you know, sometimes maybe something is being used for an unobvious reason, but I always assumed it was basically supposed to be a more resilient uh, young pyromancer, and it's... It's kind of borderline at doing that in my in my mind. Yeah, I think the reason some people play it over Young Pyromancer is because if you have an Awoken Horror on the board, you can use Sahili's ability to turn one of your Thopters into a copy of the Awoken Horror and swing for 14. Sure. But it's still, I don't know, it feels a little man-intensive. If you're flipping an Awoken Horror, that means you really don't have any Thopters left, or maybe one if you've cast a spell after flipping the Thing in the Ice. So I don't know. I still feel like I need to be shown what this card can do before I become a believer on it. Uh, third place was Wojciech Radosh on Eldrazitron, and this deck had two Ugin the Ineffable main. So do you guys think that's just permanent tech from now on? I haven't played with or against Ugin the Ineffable enough to know what kind of power it's actually bringing to, the, to any deck like this. It kind of seems to me like a card advantage engine, right? Because it just puts all those morphs eventually into your hand either using your own blast zone to blow them up or just chump blocking or something. Mm, your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. In fourth place, we have Harald Klingsheim on Jund. Uh, this deck was, there's not exactly a stock Jund list at the moment. The deck's evolving and moving with Modern Horizons. This one only had two Renin 6 main and a single Ghost Quarter in the side. Is Renin 6 kind of hovering around two as the average, do you think? I feel like I've seen three quite often as well. Um, but yeah. it's it's right it's it's two and a half <laughs> sure. on average. I mean, I think it's sweet. How how many games have you guys played against Run and Six? I'm assuming none of us have played with it at this point. Oh no, um, I've played against it. Um, it was just a destroyer against me playing Infect. Oh, for sure, like, it just pings you know, all your creatures. It was absurd. It's just repeatable pinging. So th that was a nightmare. I found it to be very powerful against Prison. The It comes down early, gets around to Chalice on 1, and then just provides tons of value the rest of the game, and they bury me in it. I They are able to get the ultimate off and then started retracing Lightning Bolts after they destroyed my Chalice. So, so it goes. The real balance I've found is knowing how dangerous a, run in si a resolve run in 6 actually is. Like, how much do I need to get this thing off the battlefield versus attack my opponent's life total? And so, like, 
you know, just like any walk or even like a Liliana slowly creeping up with the plus, it's getting to an ultimate that will do something. And so you kind of have to be concerned about it, but how concerned you need to be is is the real question. I I find that them the opponent getting back a land and making their land drops constantly is worse than it seemed to me like on on the uh, on the opposing side where it's like oh man they're just making every land drop they need to all the time right and so never missing a land drop is great i mean you always have the land you need to do something or double spell even late in the game yeah i mean there's a couple other dimensions to this too of course which is john now gets to has more incentive to pack utility lands and so you have things like uh the the what's the black that baron moore yeah, yeah, Baron Moore. Where they're they're running that as a one of where they can cycle it, return it to their hand, cycle it, draw another card. You know, so if you need need some card draw, sometimes you can do that whole game. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys ever played blue white control with a um, Crucible of Worlds in deck where you were like, go ahead, kill my Celestial Colonnade. I will just replay it. Well, guess what? Now Jun gets to do that with Raging Ravine as well. So if you manage to get beyond that, um, they they can just recur that threat. So even I think there's a lot of dimensions to that just beyond making land drops. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it only took what five new cards to make Jund have a comeback. So we have like nurturing peatland, seasoned power master, Renin six, collector oof, plague engineer for sideboard cards. All of these are upgrades to this deck. So you know, you know, five new cards all at once. You know, Jund is definitely seeing a resurgence. In fifth place. We had Kristoff Green on humans. This one had five non-human creatures in the sideboard. Two of the Plague Engineer, two Collector Oof, and then one Deputy Retention, which is a little more stock. Yeah, good cards get put in sideboards. Good creature cards. I, I saw a thought the other day, if humans is just the future of Zoo with the diversification of the creature type, and that just feels correct to me. Yeah, I mean, the human synergies are so strong for the threats that I, you know, it's going to stay in that aspect just because of Thalia's lieutenant and champion of the parish and stuff. But I mean, having the ability to cast sideboard cards that are creatures is a dimension that definitely humans was missing before. And now it has it. So in sixth place, we have Lugosh Shavarsky on Titan breach. Uh, this one had two Renin six in the main deck, as well as one magmatic sinkhole on the side. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to say about Renin six in a, in a Titan breach main deck. I guess it just, it makes sense for a deck that wants lands to get lands back. Yep. And that minus one will get you, you know, X amount of percentage points. The card's just very good. And the utility of getting a land back, especially in mana based strategies is very powerful. Yeah. He only ran one scape shift in the deck. And I think having access to that run in six made it so much easier for this player to cast through the breach more consistently. And then once you've cast that through the breach, usually that's game over because you've got, you know, either Primeval Titan or Emrakul or in this case, it also had the Woodfull Primus. Yeah, good card. In seventh place, we had Simon Gellin on Mardu Pyromancer. So this one had four seasoned Pyromancer main, three Arcanist, two Smiting Helix, and then it had two play engineer in the sideboard. Just to remind people, Smiting Helix is the new Mardu colored like flashback lightning helix. Is that correct? Yeah. It's four mana to cast normally, or the flashback is one red, one white, and it's a sorcery. Yeah, this is basically the deck I played for us, leave it, believe it, heave it for Modern Horizons, actually. This, uh, the build that had Dreadhorde Arcanist instead of Yogmoth or um, Bedlam Reveler. So it's pretty cool to see this show up. 
spoilers, it's definitely on my short list of decks to try out this weekend in Denver. So nice to see a little bit of positive reinforcement about the deck. Finally, in eighth place, we have Mark Mortagrega, Alonzo, on Mono Green Tron. No new cards, stock list. Tron is here to stay at the back of the pack. I just think it's so interesting that Tron got seemingly nothing in Modern Horizons because the threshold for cards to enter this deck is so high because it's just so well-tuned. But it seems to have the Karn wish package maybe as a staple now. I, I agree with that. I also think that I have to believe it was intentional on Wizards' part to not give Tron new cards. I, I, I seriously do. The deck is so good and the deck is so consistent that I think they would worry about a new card and a draw and just makes it, you know, too consistent, too good. So to sum it up, we have a top eight where there are eight different decks, two Tron decks, but one Eldrazi, one Mono Green, and a lot of different new cards. This is pretty exciting. This is a far cry from things we've seen in the past, right? Yeah, it kind of looks and feels a little bit like we're back to normal. Like this is what we wanted all along when we were screaming about Hogak, myself included. Is anyone surprised that we're not seeing a truly brand new archetype yet? Or does the format still need more time to, you know, find that novel strategy? I mean, do you consider decks like Grixis, Urza were to be new or just a, a change? Personally, I think it's a change. I, I've played against it now and it plays a lot like... The old Werven mentioned decks. Yeah, I mean, totally new decks. That's going to take some time, I think. I think there's nothing that's like, you know, we can form an entirely new deck around this. Like, you know, even even if someone made a Sliver's deck, it wouldn't be a totally new deck. I think that they claimed that they were going to add some more power and some more interesting cards to decks and not try to put the format into upheaval. And Hogak aside, maybe that's where it's going to end up. Yeah. But, I mean, Modern changed so much so fast. I mean... We'll, we'll just see where it goes from here. We have M20 to deal with going forward even as well, and there's a couple of powerful cards in that as well. Yeah, I think what's interesting maybe to pivot to after this pretty clean top eight is this article from Toby Henke that Stan talked about earlier. Yay, Toby. Thank you for writing an article about one of the tournaments we, we asked and he delivered. I'm sure he has no idea who we are. Yeah, we love Toby because he gives us lots to talk about and gives us some cold, hard facts. So many numbers. I think I think this article has every number. <laughs> it has zero through through nine. It's got all of them. Yeah. It's even got Bleen, the hidden number. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what this article is, which we'll have in the show notes, of course, is he gives us from GP Dallas, Fort Worth, is the number of players and the percentage of each deck across the entire field, not just day two. And then also gave us the win rates of each deck across all of their matches, but also all of the non-Bridgevine matches, now that the deck is out of the format, to give proper context for us to move forward. So there's a ton of data here. Can you imagine how much work that was for him? No. To do the split stats, to yeah. pull out the Hogak matchups? Match That's absurd. That man must love Microsoft Excel. <laughs> I would like to send him a $10 gift card to the Olive Garden. Toby, hit me up. Yeah, let's I will do buy it. You They're your family. And Toby, will, you're part of our family. I'd like to share some possibilities with you. <laughs> so... I know you guys think it's a lot of work, but you know, once you set up some pivot tables, once you figure out some Excel formulas, half the work is done by itself for I'm you. I'm sure Toby will appreciate here, that. Um, so there's so much data to assess here. We're just going to hit some highlights. So what we're going to do first, the decks with 3% or more representation in the day one meta. So we had 9.5% uh, Bridgevine, 
8% Phoenix, 7.4% Blue White Control, 6.6% Infect, 6.3% Humans, 5% Mono Red Prowess, aka Mono Red Phoenix, 4.9% Burn, 3.1% Tron, 3.1% Devoted Vizier, 3.1% Jund, and 3% Colorless Eldrazi, which also includes Eldrazi Tron. What are your guys' thoughts on this? I don't think it's any shock that Bridge Vine was almost 10%, personally. Um, I think everything else sort of just adds up for me. This makes sense. This is what we've been seeing for quite a while. I'm not shocked by this at all. I think Devoted Vizier is a little higher than I would have thought it would have been previously at 3%. But even that, it's a good, consistent deck. Well, Toby kind of gets at that, which I found to be interesting. Because he said that, in fact, in Devoted Vizier decks, it had about 1% of the metagame prior to Hogak and Modern Horizons. But... Since the strategies could theoretically outrace uh, Hogak Vine, it made sense for them to appear in greater numbers, probably. I think the big surprise to me on this list is that Infact had 6.6% of the day one meta in uh, in it, which is, uh, given the results that you had with it and the fact that we haven't seen it popping up in a lot of places still, it seems kind of kind of wild to me that that many people sleeved it up. People are really waiting for it to come back, and I think especially like GP people who aren't necessarily like, you know, the mythic championship pros, they just wanted an excuse and were wanting to test out some of the new power that was hopefully there. But haven't we kind of coalesced around the opinion that mono red Phoenix is just kind of the new in fact, maybe. Well, I think that's our opinion and I'm, I'm curious how long it'll take for that to kind of creep to be the reality. Right. And I mean, and it zoomed that out. Wasn't Phoenix the new burn? as well so it's sort of like these are just aggro decks i guess is probably the best way to put it yeah yeah what's interesting next i think is we'll talk about some of the actual results here and so we'll we'll talk only about the non-hogak bridgevine win rates because that deck's not around anymore uh, at least in the same form and so but before that before you were dying to know probably bridgevine won 56.3 percent of its 975 matches so the way we're going to do this, we're going to read off decks that had a greater than 50% win rate and also had more than 100 matches. Uh, we'll start with Colorless Eldrazi, which had a startling, to me, 60.3% win rate in 272 non-Hogak matches. Aren't those bannable numbers typically? I mean, obviously this is one tournament. Well, th- I think this kind of reinforces one of our assumptions made on the last episode that Colorless Eldrazi and Etron were one of the good matchups against Hogak. So sure. if you're in a room full of Bridgevine and you get Chalice, you got to do a turn one Chalice, that seems to, you know, usher the way for a lot of easy wins. Right. And you can quickly play creatures that can profitably block Vegivines and such. Yeah, but we're talking about non-Hogak matches here, 63 percent yeah, wow. Well, just a good deck, huh? Well, also the second most popular deck was Izzet Phoenix, another deck that's severely punished by turn one chalice. Sure. Not to mention Infect and Burn and Mono Red Phoenix. Like, it looks like there's a lot of cards or a lot of decks here, even Junt for that matter, you know, that's doing like Thought Season, Lightning Bolt and Inquisition, etc. A lot of decks here seem to want to cast as many one mana spells as possible and chalice on one, if you can cheat that out on turn one. Seems really great. Yeah, I will say, though, I think people assumed that that Colorless Eldrazi was good against Hogak. And if you read Toby's article, it actually did not have that great of a win rate against it. It had a positive one, but it only went 24 and 22. Hmm. 
the fact that he pulls out that's super interesting. The deck that you know this is can you know consign this to the historical archives, but the deck that actually had the best record against Bridgevine, according to Toby's research, was Humans. What at a forty-four and twenty-four record in the matchup, hmm. which is pretty good. It's like just good. shy of sixty-six percent. So I think that we were kind of off on what our assumptions on the, about the decks that were good against Bridgevine were. Not that it matters now. At least with this small sample size. Um, so I think we should keep going down this list. So starting at 60.3%, we're going to just work our way down to 50 here So to avoid reading a bunch of numbers. So we had next lowest was Hardened Scales. Um, with 169 total matches, only 1.5% representation, yet the second best deck in the field. Um, I keep saying that this is probably the best deck. I think not enough people are playing. Uh, all I know is that when someone sits across from me with this deck, I know they mean business. I know that they're, they're someone who's going to put some hurt on me. It's someone who's going to find lines to lethal every single turn. Mm-hmm. You gotta. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious why this has been played less as well, but um, I'm not as much... Con- After playing it through a couple of leagues, I'm not as convinced that uh, it needs more representation. <laughs> Let's say. Oh, yeah. So, um, where prison is next, red prison below Woo. that, then devoted vizier, affinity, blue white control, jund, thopter foundry, mono red prowess, burn, mardu pyromancer, and humans is at 51.4%. So, fill in the blanks between humans and color Seldrazi, you have your 50% plus decks in the field. So it's interesting, Dave, you mentioned humans had one of the best, if not the best, uh, Hogak matchup in the field, but it seemed to struggle, perhaps, against some of the other decks, which is surprising to me because humans doesn't really change that much to fight the meta. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, I can't really answer that, but I do agree that it's surprising to see that it, if it had a 64-ish percent win rate against Hogak, which was the biggest deck in the field that uh it balanced out to 51.4 in the in the greater field that's uh kind of a surprise maybe humans doesn't need to change a lot because it's pre-boarded against every deck thanks to meddling mage so as long as you can identify your opponent's deck on their turn one land or turn one play sometimes you can just name the one card that shuts you down what's what i'm saying stan is that if with a 51.4 percent win rate across the non-hogak decks i mean that's definitely positive but um, it's not as positive as it was just against Hogak. So I kind of typically assume humans is going to be maybe slightly better against a, a field just because of its flexibility. But I mean, 52%, 51.4, you'll take that because you know you just have to flip a coin the right way a few times, a weighted coin the right way a few times. So one of the things that I find really interesting about this list of decks you've read above 50% is that you know a number of them are decks that used to be below 50%. Yes. And, and as we're going to get you know, shortly some of the below 50% decks used to be above, and it feels like there was almost like a flip in the meta. Yeah, you know, this... Mardu Pyromancer, for instance, and Junt aren't decks that, you know, we've seen be particularly dominant for, you know, the first half of the year. And here we are. And they're one of the strongest decks in Dallas. Mid-range is undead. Prove me wrong. <laughs> it's unearthed. Shambling from the yeah. grave. I mean, you're right. Mid- vengeance. Mid-range is unearthed. That's right. So the next decks have over 100 non-Hogak matches, but were sub-50%. So we're going to start from the 50% uh, area and get worse. So 
in fact, had 506 matches. This is a pretty large sample size. As we said, it was like a 6.5% you know, of the meta. It only had a 47.8% win rate. Green, Black, Rock, Tron, uh, Red, Green, Valakit. Is it Phoenix and Spirits? So Spirits was 45.5, the lowest percentage win rate against uh, you know, any deck over 100 matches. But is it Phoenix? 45.9%. And all I've been hearing lately is that it's more powerful than ever with some of these new tools. Well, maybe it's not. <laughs> So Deep, good assessment, Stan. I like it. Well, part okay. So I suspect it may have been held back in part by all the cards that are designed to beat Hogak, like all the graveyard hate that we're seeing. Uh, the other thing I would throw in here is that if you look at the things at the top of the list, you have Colorless Eldrazi, War Prison, and Red Prison, which all run Chalice of the Void. Is that right? And Ensnaring Bridge. Yeah, I mean Ensnaring Bridge is good against Phoenix. I think Chalice is way. I mean, just stops you cold. Oh sure, sure. I mean, they have first place and second place for a reason. Do you, Dave, or anyone else who's cast Aria Flame? I think Dave might be the only person on the pod. Do you think Aria Flame may be hurting this deck's performance a little bit? Um, so I have never cast Aria Flame. I've played. I played blue red right before Modern Horizons came out most recently. Um, okay. Playing against it a number of times, I would find that hard to believe. I think that Aria has definitely been solely responsible for killing me. A bunch of times when i've played against phoenix lately yeah i would echo that as someone who plays mono red prison i had a 5-0 stolen from under me by an aria flame because the spells still trigger even when you cast it through a chalice cool yeah so yeah they can dump their bolts all they want and i'm still getting pinged yeah so i mean my overall surprises here is uh in fact in this large sample size is not doing that well um, I don't think you should be surprised by that, though, Shane. You played it and found that you didn't think it was that good. I also don't think I'm necessarily an amazing player, so it's <laughs> it's good to it's good to see that perhaps my inclinations um, were right, and that I think that you know, like we've been saying, Dave, and you mentioned, is I think that Infect's time perhaps is has come and gone. That other decks have eclipsed it in terms of just totally raw beatdown speed, um, like you know our uh, mono red prowess friends. Uh, I think that I did like seeing the very high win rate of Devoted Vizier. There are strategies that I've mentioned in the past few episodes that I'm keeping my eye on, and a 54.5% win rate does seem appealing to me. Shane Beeps, I'm not good, but I'm right. (laughs) I feel like this is where we should drop our disclaimer. The Dive Down makes no claims to being players of any excellent caliber at all. Thank you for your support. I I have not once said I am good on this show, nor will I ever. Me either. I track my stats... I hover around 50%. I'll take it. Ooh, like a true pro. (laughs) I don't track my stats, but I feel like I'm way above 50%. (laughs) In my mind's eye, I'm seeing a big old 7.5 looking at me. This is one of those things you're really going to have to follow your gut on. (laughs) Um, What I would, you know, normally we might say, how would this inform our future choices? But I think we're going to get into all that into the, the dive down section below. Shane, I think that's a good cue to take a quick break. We're going to regroup our thoughts, and when we come back with the dive down, we're going to talk about how we've been selecting our decks for the modern MCQ in Denver this weekend. Stay with us. Last week, one of our patrons submitted a question to the podcast that was 
very thought-provoking for us, and we actually decided to convert it into an entire episode. So shout out to Matt for this one, because today we're going to dive into how the four of us, Casual Spikes, are preparing and choosing decks for the MCQ and side events at GP Denver. Because we're all going to be together. Oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. I can't In wait Denver. To can't wait to make some waffles for you guys. I'm going to make some fresh whipped cream, some chocolate uh chocolate chips on top yeah this is taking a weird turn okay and then uh you know shane i really prefer you didn't tell people about our diet i got (laughs) i got a new waffle iron for this weekend that's that's hilarious this weekend on the splendid table talk all about (laughs) our favorite Um, olive oils so real quick people may know people in our slack we've talked to a little bit but if you are a listener who is going to be at grand prix denver please reach out to us via Twitter or something like that. We'd love to say hi. Um, we'll have a tiny amount of swag that we can share with people. So come and hit us up and we'll, we'll have something fun. And we'd just love to, to meet people and say hi at the event. So yeah, one yeah, of the challenges things, to games of modern, if you want. Yeah. One of the things I think we should do is post up for a little bit at the, the one V one side events. We just go buy a little cheap ticket. You play a single match with somebody and then you bounce um, and so we can just sort of post up there and kind of take all comers who come by. I think that'd be fun. So look for us there too. Yeah. Best way to find us, Twitter. All of us will have our, our, our Twitters on and we are all connected to the Dive Down account. So just add us and we can hang. Yeah. And for the most part, I think we're almost exclusively playing modern. I don't even own a standard deck. I might bring one commander deck, but I feel like Zach and I are the only ones who ever play commander periodically. I'll probably do some Modern Horizons drafts if there's sit and go drafts here and there, depending on what time is looking like. Um, you know, Grand Prix, I think you, they always feel like you have more time than you actually do to fit in events. So we're, we are, I mean, my plan is mostly to concentrate on just playing some paper modern tournaments and just enjoying it. Yeah, but so we've all been kind of talking and thinking about what we want to bring to this tournament. Now that, you know, with Hogak Bridgevine gone and Modern Horizons sort of settling in a little bit, we've all had kind of thoughts bouncing around our head uh, what to bring, what to take with us, because we may have a lot of decks, but you can only play one. Yeah, so we're each in a very fortunate position where we have several decks available to us, either from our collections individually, some of us are sharing cards, whatever the case may be. The four of us have been spending a lot of time thinking about what to play, since that's, you know, tweaking your 75 is often the hardest decision a young Magic player can make. So that's why in this week's Dive Down, we're going to look at the decks we're choosing from, Young at Heart Chain. Consider how they relate to the modern metagame as it stands today. Share some of the findings we've had while testing and maybe provide some insights for how each of us prepare before a competitive event. All right. So I might as well go first. I wasn't here last week. I'm jonesing to have a big wall of text to talk about with all y'all. So Single spaced um, two pages. <laughs> so I guess my, my short list going into this weekend was pretty much a dredge. Esper Mentor, uh, Burn, and Devoted Druid Strategies. And Burn is kind of a surprising new addition. It's based off of, one, just the pure simplicity and linearity of it in kind of a slightly unknown metagame. But also, too, it's been putting up some results lately. So that's been that's always appealing. When you see a deck that you know, you've liked playing, putting up some results, it kind of draws you into it. But 
I think I'm really going to just be playing Dredge, at least at the MCQ. Maybe some side events. I'll kind of have some fun with Esper Mentor. But I think Dredge is a deck to play uh, this weekend especially. I think the the game one power level is still just overtly super high. I think, and I think with Hogak out of the metagame, I think most main deck answers are going to be out of people's decks, besides maybe like a stray surgical extraction. If people are choosing to run that main deck, I think I just have to accept it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm already seeing people say, like, I think I can reduce Relic of Progenitus down to two copies in like some Green Tron Facebook group discussions. So I think signs like that just point me to, okay, my game one matchups are going to be as strong as ever. But more importantly, perhaps, is I think that the sideboard hate is going to be somewhat lighter due to Hogak being removed from the metagame. And I think that opens up Dredge to have an opportunity, maybe not as quite the same opportunity as it might have before people were really aware of graveyard strategies being the du jour of of, uh, modern the past few months. Um, I think that that's going to really give me an opportunity to spike a tournament and capitalize on the slightly better percentages there in sideboarded games. But then I really also worry that people are going to be aware of Dredge kind of lurking in the background, and they're not going to shave as much from their sideboard as I might hope. Um, But I feel like nearly every answer besides a Ravenous Trap can be played around a little or directly answered with, like, counter hate. So what do you guys think about that thought process? Like, do you think, like, I I think I'm basically talking about metagaming modern, right? And is that something that you can even do? That's a good question, and it really depends on where you're playing at and how well you know the local area, right? So I would feel prepared to metagame an event at my local game store, but at a, you know, a couple hundred person event, I don't know. I, I And I'll, I'll touch on this when it comes to my section and how that fits in with me, but I, I would be worried that when you try to metagame an event, you can out-metagame yourself and then come with hate cards or strategies that are just not relevant. So like I put a quarter in my pocket because I played myself? <laughs> yeah zach that's something i can really relate to ahead of a tournament when i'm trying to solidify a 75 i will sometimes get into my own head and overthink what or what doesn't belong in a sideboard but to answer shane's question about metagaming the format i think it's yes and no because on the one hand the format is massive and your odds of playing the same deck twice are pretty low in a large event that's got several hundred players but at the same time, you know, we as podcasters understand the relative power level of some of the decks in the meta. And I think that's really important to informing your thinking about what's going to go into your decks and how you're going to sideboard or maybe what your vulnerable matchups are. or Maybe consider the new strategies that are available to you because we've got so many new cards coming through the format right now. Yeah, I think I kind of agree that it's a yes and no kind of answer because I think that you can metagame modern for two reasons. One is there's a lot of um, there's a lot of modern that on a week to week basis I think can be kind of like this fashion hype where people get really excited about a certain kind of deck within the sort of internet sphere and you can kind of see the messaging around it you can see it all of a sudden start to bubble up on people's streams and on on 5-0 deck dump lists and then it's sort of like see a card spike yeah exactly you see card spike those are all indications and then you see it sort of like crest 
And then you can see it sort of like retreat after that. So some of those decks... Like the old Vengevine deck. Yeah, I mean, the, exactly. Vengevine was a big part of that. but And that happens a lot to different aspects with, with decks. So I think if you can time that right, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the news, you can sort of maybe pick up a couple of wins or a couple of fav- favorable matchups in a big tournament by paying attention to the sort of the rhythm of the fashion of modern. On the flip <laughs> side, the other thing that you can always keep in mind is that there are sort of super archetypes that have hate cards that are good against them in modern, right? Great point. So graveyard decks is always a question. It's like how good and how prevalent are graveyard decks at a given moment in modern. That's the the kind of buzzword right now. Because even with Hogak gone, they're still pretty popular. There's still tons of decks that used to, yeah. to use the graveyard for different things. And the same can go sometimes for artifact decks, can go for small creature decks and tribal decks and on and on. Dave, I think you just put that perfectly. And that's something that I can really relate to where sometimes I can get, like I've mentioned before, tunnel vision where, oh, I'm setting this card in because I'm going to face Phoenix. No, zoom out. What are you setting in when you're facing aggro or aggressive tempo decks? That's the sort of thing where, oh, Anger of the Gods might be better this tournament because I think I'm going to see a lot of go-wide strategies as opposed to I think I'm going to see a lot of Mentor. Yeah, maybe think, Zach, about back to our kind of a tweak episode a long while back um, is is we've talked a lot about how to configure your sideboard and how to think about your sideboard. And I think that you know a lot of the power of metagaming is seen in configuring your sideboard, but also kind of you know, it's making me think about my deck selection altogether. And I'm kind of looking at this and I'm saying, do I see a window for me to kind of attack people's shields while they're down? And I don't, I'm not 100% sure that it's the right choice, but I'm going to take the chance. Well, let's let's talk about a little bit what subtle change you might think that there is in people's graveyard hate packages that gives an opening for Dredge. Yeah, I think that there's some new additions to Dredge that shores it up against the kind of the graveyard attacks, Dave, where, you know, people are running main deck blast zone now to kind of be able to remove some annoying permanents on, on the other side of the table. Um, you know, Hogak is like a one or two of is definitely spicy just for a gigantic beater. That's fairly easy to be castable. I think that, um, you know, this is not regarding graveyard hate, but I think with Forgotten Cave is now you can like life from the Lomit back to your hand and that cycles. It's a cycling land in red. So that's kind of a really easy dredge uh, trigger. And, you know, Creeping Chill is still legal. So I think that combine that with the London Mole, which we've been, you know, we haven't all really experienced a ton yet, but I think that allows dredge to sculpt that, you know, four card opening hand. It just needs to get going with like the enabler and the dredger and a couple lands. And, you know, so I think that's kind of all more additional reasons. I think that I think, and you know, with, with with cards like shenanigans with, uh, being able to kill that annoying graph diggers cage and on the side of the table, I think those are all good additions to the deck. Um, I think that the meta game broadly is not super threatening to dredge. And it's gonna that's gonna be conducive to some wins, like because Dredge doesn't like to see combo decks on the side of the table. Doesn't like to see Titan. Doesn't like to see Ad Nauseam, Storm. Those can be really uh, annoying things to face. But this is not around right now. I don't know what the heck happened to Titan decks, but I think that they must have just not had any game in kind of a, a Hogak meta game because they're they went poof. They also didn't get a lot of pieces in in Horizons, right? I don't think we talked about Titan in any of our reviews, really. Not a lot, anyway. I mean, I think Hogak being there. I mean, it's hard when your opponent has a turn two blo- that uh, play that can block Titan. 
<laughs> you know, so good point. I mean, I don't know if that was all of it, but that definitely f- feels like some of it. Yeah. You know, I'm not super enthralled, though, with playing against like an Urza War style deck. And I think that they can they can really peel up some meaningful hate and like prison and lock cards fairly easily. So I'm not leaving the house without fewer than three ancient grudges this weekend and a shenanigans. And I'm also not really sure about how dredge fares against devoted combo decks, which is why I think I'm definitely have to run two dark blasts in my 75 right now. They'll probably be in the sideboard just to keep that uh, Hogak engine going strong in game one, but that's kind of like my tech as well as I think I need that small creature hate. Are you adopting Ho or are you adopting Sodex tech and running Hogak in your seventy five? Oh yeah, I think it's worth a one of. I think you don't dilute your engine enough, and you give your you know with with just a single card, you're not diluting that engine, but it adds a, a ton of you know large power to the board and recursive power at that. Um, I think I'll, I'll know more, a little bit more about when I maybe do some testing with you all on uh, Friday when you arrive, but um, I'm pretty sold on a, a singleton. So do you think you could maybe neatly sum up the big reasons you've decided on dredge for the tournament? Um, sum it all up. Um, good game one power, uh, potentially less uh, hate broadly in the field, has good answers, to hate now in the main and sideboard and i think that it might have a window opportunity to to spike that way i think its weaknesses will be uh, urza war decks and potentially devoted combo decks but i think that is still the same dredge we've all come to love or hate great zach what are you thinking this weekend i know that you've had an interesting thought process here Right, so I've been between two decks, Scred and Prison, and I'm really looking at this through really the lens of familiarity with the deck versus a power level of a deck. Yeah, it's always a really tough decision to make, right? Right. So to call back to Toby's article real quick, Mono Red Prison had a 54.5% win rate, and Scred did not appear a single time in the article, not even the word. So <laughs> What is Scred, S. Toby yeah. Yankee? So to bring this back, sort of part one of my thing is why I switched from Scred to Prison initially. So anyone who's a fan of this podcast has heard even one or two episodes knows I like Scred. It's a big part of my identity in Modern. It's really the first deck I played competitively, and I really, really like the play style. I've been playing the deck for nearly five years at this point, and I just love it. But in the past year, I found my success with Scred online, especially on Magic Online, declining and where I used to be able to go 4-1 pretty consistently, I was going 3-2 and sometimes worse. And so while 3-2 is not the end of the world, I want to be doing better. And I found that Blood Moon naturally on turn 3 was getting countered, wasn't you know good enough because my opponent was getting fetches, or just a myriad of reasons that I was feeling sort of fed up with the deck. So my choice to move to prison really solidified when I played in that competitive event in Milwaukee with Stan. And I found that in my sideboard I had a Chalice of the Void and Ensnaring Bridge, and I was bringing them in almost every single game. So if I'm at a point where I am constantly setting in the same cards, maybe they need to be main deck. So moving from there, deciding I need to cast lock pieces very quickly, Mono Red Prison. So I've slowly accumulated pieces to the deck, started learning the ropes, and it turns out it's much harder to play than Scred. After you know learning how to play mid-range for a while, I had memorized a lot of the lines for Scred or had good ideas how to operate, and with Prison, they were just so different. And a lot of the maxims didn't cross over, or they were like the uh, language thing, false friends, where it seems very similar, but I actually misplayed and I'm all of a sudden O2. Things where I would jam blood moons for chalices or run out chalices on one where I already had a chalice on two and counter my own chalice. Things like that, where it's just chalice on one, opponent goes, okay, countered. Oh, <laughs> okay. And even if I don't lose that moment, it feels bad. It feels like you're not a good magic player. Yeah, 
it's really frustrating to pilot a deck that you want to learn and you want to figure out and you're like, I, I play magic. I, I, I know magic pretty well. And then you just do like these really ridiculous punts where it's like, oh, that's completely obvious. That was just an onboard effect that I should have looked at. And that's, I think, one of the things you know that you have to, we all have to sort of get over in order to really to spend the time to learn something is you're going to have to make mistakes because magic is a super complicated game. No, absolutely. And to compound on that, the deck got a new card in war with Karn Great Creator, which has been amazing. It's really, really revitalized the deck and I think has made the deck that much better. But Karn isn't just you play the game and you play him and you win the game. It's much more complicated than that because you can minus him, grab a latest, and then your opponent goes, okay, Karn's dead. And now you have a six mana do nothing artifact in your hand. Yeah, it's definitely not an auto win just by casting. Exactly. So I'm still learning. I'm watching videos about the deck. I'm talking on the Discord. I'm talking to people in our group, texting with friends, etc. So right now I feel like I'm at this crossroads where I feel like I've, if not quote unquote mastered Scred, I've gotten nearly as good as I can get with it. But I don't feel like it's quite powerful enough in the certain meta where prison is, but I feel like I'm going to be missing prison lines and making misplays with prison that I wouldn't make with Scred. Yeah, but you must have been pretty excited to see that article that we talked about earlier where mono red prison was like hovering at 55%-ish wins. Yes, it's it's certainly um, swayed my choice in a way or, or uh, felt like it pushed me in a different direction, but... Scred's always a deck that's on the fringes of things, right? So it, it would be shocking to see a Scred appear in a Toby Hanky list, quite frankly. <laughs> well, just there's so few people that play it. There's there's so, seven of us. There's and seven. I know all of them. <laughs> like, are we talking nationally or regionally? Uh, we'll, we'll say 12 globally and seven in the greater Chicagoland area. Wow. Chicago is the seat of Scred because we're Apparently, often snow-covered. Yeah. An icy throne. <laughs> so I, I guess the, the question I'm bringing to the table, what I want to bring with you guys right now, do you feel like having familiarity or feel like a deep understanding of a deck? It, what, what, how does that compare to a power level, right? So if I know this tier three sort of fringe deck really well, better than I know what is maybe a tier one deck even, should I bring that? Or should I go with the tier one deck that I am a little more loose with? This is a big question with small answers. I have both sleeved up currently. Have you tried flipping a coin? See, I, I hear that, and when you flip it, you know what's going to be, but then I just knock the coin out of the air. <laughs> I think it. Well, I think we can look at this kind of mathematically, and it's going to be like some really fuzzy math, some really crummy numbers. But like Snow you can, math. you can say, all right, um, spirits is maybe like a forty, let's say a forty-five to to fifty percent deck, right? Um, mm -hmm. But but if you're really good with it, maybe you get that to fifty, but if you're going to play a 55% deck and you know, what's the window there? Is it like, what's the floor? Like, let's talk about like, you know, fantasy sports kind of concepts, right? Like how, what's the worst that this choice could do for me? Could it, you know, is it, is it a high injury prone player that like they get injured week one and you get zero out of them? Or do they just have a very consistent floor that even if they do poorly, it's going to be a pretty decent choice. So that's like kind of like one way I would look at it is like what's my ceiling with burn versus what's my floor what's my floor with burn or what's my ceiling with in the, your case what's my ceiling with scred and maybe that's like forty six percent and what's my floor with scred well maybe that's forty six percent too right and I, I think that's an excellent way to put it where I think that scred's more consistent but prison has more, way more peaks and valleys because the thing with prison is your top decks are so much worse because sometimes you get a ritual and sometimes you get a mana monkey 
and then it's game over. Where in Scred, you're more likely to rip gas from the top. So you're, and that's the whole thing is you're trading off that consistency. So sometimes you have to mold a five, and then it's uh oh. But on the same note, sometimes you do have the explosive starts. So it's a big trade off. Zach, I have advice for you. I've, I've been thinking about your dilemma, and I think you should play prison for several reasons. Um, I mean, for one, you know firsthand how Scred has been doing lately and its performance over time. And it sounds to me like it isn't getting a bunch of new tech and modern horizons that you think might improve its performance in general. No, there's been a 5.0 list with a single of the snow creature land popping up, but Scred will always have a a 5.0 pop up here and there. There are devotees. Yeah, but I think the most important reason for you to play Prison uh, has to do with results-oriented thinking and, and goals in general. And I think you probably want to consider, at least if I was in your position, I'd really consider how important it was to me either to win versus to learn. And this seems like a really great opportunity for you to go into a tournament to test your skills, test your ability to make good choices, and see what you could learn about this deck beyond this tournament. Because you're going to stick with it no matter what. Right. I love this. This is literally what I was going to say to Zach when you were done, Stan. So you're channeling, yeah, I, you're channeling me right now. This is a learning opportunity. Oh, oh, sorry, Dave. Are you taking credit for what Stan <laughs> just said before? Oh, you? sorry. Not, I'm not trying to take credit. I'm just trying to say I agree. And I feel like, yeah, this is a learning opportunity. Well, and, and to be honest, this is actually something I learned from Shane and about, you know, not being rotty and not, you know, letting results orient your thinking and really making good choices and that's what the tournament should be about about good choices and not about winning per se and i learned that from uh, marshall suckliff and ryan spain on limited resources so. I, i'd also like to say this is not what they mean by results oriented thing no. <laughs> that is not what that phrase means i love yeah, we, i love what you're saying stan but that that's not the phraseology that goes with no with it's it, it is shane's phraseology and, and he's redefined the term and i've accepted shane's definition oh god this is like saying i beg the question of x I do not recall <laughs> defining in that fashion, but um, Dave, I wanted to just jump back quickly. What did you think? What do you think as a fantasy sportsman about that kind of concept of ceiling and floor and deck selection? I think it's super important. Um, I think that it's something that pros think about, or someone who ha- is a kind of a grinder level person. I mean, I think that's where the story that Zach kind of took us through. I think is a little bit. It feels to me like. You know, it's not like we've been prepping for six months and Zach is like, all right, it's time for me to try to make the pro tour in this MCQ. Like what what we're trying to do is figure out. Well, what, isn't that entirely the idea? I mean, yeah, there's an outside <laughs> shot of that for any for any person on any day. But sure. wh- I think I loved what Stan said where he was like, where Stan was kind of like, I think you should think about what you're going to do after this day as well and make this decision in that context. And if you want to get better at prison, this is a great opportunity to get better at prison. I think I think that's exactly how I felt, what I felt made sense listening to Zach's story. This is a real test your might in Mortal Kombat. Like, how fast can you break those wood blocks? Can you break bricks? Cement? Steel? I will say, if you are thinking, Zach, that you want to be want to see how well you can do in this as part of the metric of how happy you are at the end of the day with this tournament, like raw win-loss numbers, I would try to to run Scrat an event on Friday afternoon hmm. and okay. see how it feels there um, and then switch over to prison on Saturday if you need to. Now, so it's sort of this idea of I would play 
I would maybe consider playing prison online for the rest of the week. Right. And then play Scrat on Friday afternoon and see if you love it and then choose Saturday morning from there. Yeah. Because I was going to say, you know, if Zach doesn't have a ton of prep time, I would definitely play the deck you're going to play at the MCQ on Saturday, also in the side of it on Friday, just to yes. some more reps. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not bad, too. Yeah. But it, but if it's coming down to something that he is already an expert in, yes. it does become a little bit of kind of fit. I mean, I, I don't think there's any denying that Zach has the most mastery of any deck of any of us on on Scred because it's just the thing that he has played the most over all this time. And so you'll probably get a sense pretty quick of what people are doing um, on Friday just by trying it out. Right. This has all been really helpful. And I, I think... Uh, how I wasn't viewing it, but I'm viewing it now is that if I don't start playing prison in situations like this and I continue to play it, I'm always going to be better at scred. And even if scred's not, it's going to hold me back in a way is really what I'm viewing it right now where I love the deck, but if it's not putting up results and another deck is, you just have to put in the work. And sometimes that work means going to a tournament and doing really bad, but learning a lesson every single game. Yeah. I like it. I think that's a good point. That's a very familiar topic for a lot of people, right? Is I know this deck but I think that there's something more powerful out there. You know, how and when do I make that decision to switch to it? And I think that, uh, you know, I definitely identify with it. So thanks, Zach. These ice caps are a melting. Yeah, my, my dilemma is a little different because I think I'm knowingly moving away from a deck that has a very clear power level. And what I'm considering for this weekend is either a variant of Phoenix, either Mono Red or Is It Phoenix, both techs I've played a lot this year to varying degrees of success. And I'm also very, very seriously considering picking up my new pet, and that's the Red Black Skelemental deck. Skelemental! Skelemental! So this is just an exciting new strategy for me. I've been having some reasonable success with it, both online and in paper. It's kind of a different strategy than what I'm used to playing. Not, I don't really play a lot of red-black, but here we are. I get to cast hand disruption spells, beat down my opponent, grind them out in the mid-to-late game. And no, I'm not playing Jund. It's red-black yeah. elemental. You get to cast 6-1 trampling discarders. That's Why not? right. Just leave it. <laughs> well, thank you, Stan. People, uh, <laughs> people don't see it coming, except... Yeah, except if it's in your graveyard and you untap with black mana. So here's why I'm considering a new deck, perhaps against my better judgment. And part of it actually has to do with what I like to call attacking the meta. And that's when I first started playing Skelemental, it kind of reminded me of the feeling I had playing Mono Red Phoenix all the way back at an SCG Classic in January, where it was like week one of that deck and no one knew what it was doing. And I only picked it up on a lark because Dave told me, hey, this deck has some turn three wins online. That's a great Dave impersonation, by the way. Hey, guys. <laughs> it's me, Dave. <laughs> yeah, so likewise, Skelemental, it's got a proactive strategy. It's very disruptive. And I think I can maybe capitalize on something that Shane alluded to, which is a potential decrease in graveyard hate, which graveyard hate is something that really hurts this deck in particular. Yes, yeah, Stan, um, I'm just so I know a little bit more about it, like does this deck attack in a unique way or do you think it just kind of uses unique pieces that people might not fully understand how to fight against? Both. The way it attacks in a unique way is that 
the six power creature is also making you discard cards. So you lose some of your optionality, potentially losing card advantage, potentially punishing you after mulliganing. So that's one. It also has a variety of win cons, which is one of the things that I find it interesting. Like it's got blood gas, it's got flame wake phoenix, it's got Gurmog anglers. Sometimes it's dealing six damage because you're going to bolt and then attack with a Dreadhorde Arcanist and rebolt. Yeah, so do you think like the opponent is like, well, crud, I have this Lightning Skelemental. This is a new card that I haven't seen before. I need to remove it. And then that kind of opens the opportunity for one of your other threats to stick and do some work for you. I found honestly that people don't remove the Skelemental, or at least they didn't until about three days ago. So we're recording this on Monday <laughs> night, and it was like a sea change between Friday night and Sunday night for me on, on Moto. Yeah, I agree. So do you think they should remove the Skeletal? Of course. Always both the Skeleton. It's like rule number one in Magic. <laughs> should you discard two cards or remove the creature and Yeah, it seems crazy that they wouldn't. That it's not that they wouldn't. It. It's that they're not they're not sculpting their game plan to where they don't leave themselves vulnerable to a haste yes. card okay. is what's going on. And so they people, you know, I found not to butt in here for a second, but I played this deck a bunch, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later. But I found especially against like mid range decks like Jund, they were super happy to play a threat and tap out for a threat, yes. and then you just yes. demolish them. I mean, that's a total Scred flashback, right? Where I'm tapping out for Koth on turn three, and then all of a sudden my hand's gone or Koth's gone. Right. Yeah. Or both. <laughs> oh, God, no, please. Dave, in general, I'm happy to kind of bounce back and forth with you yeah. because you're the only other person I know who's played this deck. Who really gets you. That's for sure. And, you know, like I've been watching streamers play it. I've been keeping an eye on its various iterations in the 5-0 list. I've been seeing it sort of evolve into Hollow One. Um, but something that I've been thinking about a lot is how viable is this strategy? Because it's not like it's taking over the format. And my paper and online record prior to this past weekend was above 50%. I was doing quite well with it. Um, and then I started suffering online for a couple of reasons. Part, I've been seeing way more graveyard hate. I feel like people, especially on MTGR, are getting wise to it. And two, this is a little more practical the price of the deck is kind of making it harder to actually rent the whole thing on mana traders. And as such, I have to play like these generic off-brand versions of it that are, you know, shaving Dreadhorde Arcanists, which, yeah. you know, sometimes Dreadhorde is really bad against Graveyard Hate, but in game one, it can be really important for recasting your Thoughtseize or your Lightning Bolts or your Unearths. Yeah, I mean, I I had to cut surgical extractions from the version of the deck that I was I was playing just to be able to fit it under the cap because the deck is up to like four hundred and eighty tickets, I think, right oh my now. Goodness. And so you just kind of have to, yeah, because season pyromancers th is thirty tickets a piece, arcanist is twenty tickets a piece, and surgical is what fifty five or whatever. And so that's a whole deck. Plus right there. fetches, you know, yeah. Cleave Cliff isn't cheap by any means. Yeah, yeah. I I think the thing that I found with this is really the whole graveyard component has been much more punishing than I thought it was going to be. And there's a couple of other pieces that I would throw in here as things that make me worried is that this deck has no way to deal with a resolved enchantment yeah. any, anywhere, which is a real drag <laughs> out of red-black decks. And sometimes yeah. it's a problem, sometimes it's not. Chaos Warp is not modern legal. So, Dave, when you're talking about enchantments, I think you're talking about Leyline of the Void specifically. I'm talking about Rest in Peace also, but yeah. 
Well, the thing about Rest in Peace is that it's two mana, and I and some other players have been running Engineered Explosives specifically for Rest in Peace. Yeah, but you got to... It's a one-of, so... It's one-of. Yeah. It is a one-of. And you're, you are drawing cards, right? It's got Faithless Looting. It's got Seasoned Pyromancer. Sure, yeah. You have, you have some w- tools to get through the deck. And your deck can definitely win with without the Graveyard. I think that there's a deck out there that still is going to be able to use... Uh, skeletal mm-hmm. without such a heavy graveyard synergy but the version of the deck i was running which i think was the same one that you shared stan was like i'm gonna run three mana chandra from m20 and dreadhorde arcanist and skeletal and unearth and it's like the full complement of all the graveyard yes. payoff cards and i just yes. think it's kind of like maybe the core of where that deck is right now is just way too reliant on that as the way it's getting advantage instead of just concentrating on a more kind of mid-rangey plan with a little bit of extra disruption from Skelemental. Right. I, I don't want to go too hard on like all the nuances of the deck and like how we're sideboarding into different strategies. Um, maybe we can do that a little bit with you, Dave. But right now, I want to talk a little bit about my personal goals and how they're shaping my deck selection because I think some of my goals are different from my co-hosts in that I have come in ninth place in a competitive REL event. So if I want to keep improving, like the only place for me to go is to top eight an event. And that's something I want to do. And it's something I've been putting some amount of work in. So I'm not going to come home heartbroken if like I get blown out and I don't top eight. But I know in my heart that top eighting an event is something that I would love to achieve at least before I become a dad one day and don't have as much time to play magic. Yeah, well... I top aided I top aided mine before I became a dad too, so I feel you. <laughs> Do you have like a, a size, a player pool like size event that you're looking for to top eight there, Stan? Nine as, people. No, no. As long as it's competitive rules enforcement level, I you know, player pool is out of my control and I'm just happy to take home some cash and show that I'm on a top eight list. And and honestly, like if it's big enough that it appears on Goldfish and I can start building a MTG Goldfish resume, kind of like an IMDB resume, that's just like a feather in my cap. Yeah, you, you no longer have a PPTQs to top eight with like 40 people. So you're, you're yeah. a harder hill to climb. Yeah, I, I guess you have SCG IQs is the new closest thing. I mean, the MCQ is the closest thing, which was what we're going to. I mean, that's going to yeah. be about 200 people. And <sighs> Yeah, and so like speaking of the MCQ, the winner gets to go to Mythic Championship Richmond. And as a Magic player, going to the Pro Tour is the dream. Right. A- am I wrong? Like, sure, we yeah. love to play just for fun, but we're also going to a competitive RL event where the winner does this specific thing. So I think we would all be pretty pleased with ourselves if, if one of us pulled it off, oh, certainly yeah. myself included. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be fun and be validating, you know what I mean? It'd be, you know, everyone would be super hyped to do so. Yeah. And as far as validation is concerned, you know, demonstrating the product of my hard work with this deck, studying the format, studying modern and the meta, and you know, demonstrating that I can make good choices against opponents who are all there to win and they're all probably pretty good like these are among my goals like to show that i have it in me sure but i think you know as i always i always try to temper your ambition here stan and and you know remind the listeners that you know if 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 you make the right decision 99 percent of the time i and and you still finish like two four you did well you know that's that's being you know that that's kind of i think what you know what marshall talks about in terms of being roddy right which is like 
decisions, not results. Right. Totally. So, so if, if you make the right decisions and you play well, yeah, I mean, that's it's really easy to say, but it's also hard to walk out the door being like, I know I played great, um, but I only won two matches. That kind of sucks. But, you know, that's magic. Yeah, but at the, at the same time, I totally feel where Stan is coming from here, which, oh, is, yeah. which is like, hey, I feel like, you know, the, you know, he feels like he's been gaining uh, traction. That he's been he's been having positive results, especially in the last like six eight months, like kind of coinciding with the same time that we've been talking on the podcast. You know, so you can thank us later. But um, the uh, I, I mean, I totally get that, and so I think it's a fine goal to have. I'll say personally. I'm nowhere near that as being my my goal for that. Like you said, like you said, Stan. Like I'm very ambivalent about trying to qualify for an MC personally. I'm much more on the third bullet that you have here, which is I just want to demonstrate that I made good choices. Mm-hmm. Like I feel really comfortable with that because I don't have a lot of results lately that that show that I've done that. So I feel like you. It's totally okay that you're at a different um, kind of level of ambition right now. I think that's great. Oh yeah, I'm not trying to poo-poo that at all. Like I've always wanted to win something like this, so I'm just trying to be that you know that just slight tempering, like you know, just play play well and and make that kind of like you know the the base goal. Totally, and and, and I have one last thing I want to touch on before I open the floor for discussion and 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 ask y'all a question, um, and that's like a non-zero amount of influence on my decision and deck selection for this is having fun. And as I've said, I've been playing a lot of Phoenix this year, and this is this new thing that I'm having a great time playing and some positive results. And like, you know, part of me is worried that with Is It Phoenix or Mono Red Phoenix, I might just be kind of bored. And doing something different and trying to test my knowledge while learning a new deck, just win, lose, or drop seems a little bit more fun. So that being said, I'm really curious if the three of you have taken any time to consider what your goals are for this event, you know. This is the first time all four of us are playing in Comparial event together. Zach and I have done it in the past. I think it's the first time we've played in any event together. Is that wrong? We all did play at a unsanctioned magic event at a bar in Chicago once, for what it's worth. <laughs> Stan, <laughs> Where we just kind of walked around and play, played matches against each other. That's true. Yes. Yeah. In between playing like games of like Pinbot 2000. Yeah, that's right. Shout um, out to Logan Hardware for making this dream a reality three or four years ago. That's right. Stan, am I hearing you kind of ask like, do do you, do my goals impact my deck selection? I'm asking you, what is your goal for the MCQ? My goal is to have fun with my friends. Hopefully, get paired up against one of you and and beat you. God, that would be uh, the worst. Just oh, getting paired up against friends, truly, truly no, the worst. At, at, the, at the MCQ, will bite. I mean, entirely. And I mean, even at the double up, we're going to do on Friday. That will bite. Yeah. But you no, know, no, my my goal always, Stan, I mean, for me is, is belying everything I said like f- three minutes ago is, you know, I want to win. And, you know, my goal is not to make the right decisions. That's like my in the back of my mind, it should be my goal. But my goal is to is to win some matches and do everything I can to to do that. And that's why mistakes like like Zach mentioned earlier, that's why mistakes sting so much is like, you know, I just cost myself 8% to win this game or something like that. It just hurts. It stings. Dave, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think I alluded to it a minute ago. I mean, my, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about it more when I get to my deck selection process, but I think my goal is really to just kind of get to that positive win ratio uh, in the in the MCQ is like the place that I want to start right now. It's been a long time since I've played a long uh, multi-round tournament like this. And so... um 
that's kind of where I'm coming from is that I would love to go five, four or, you know, four, two or something like that. And just feel good about the decisions I made. My goal more than anything is to respect Karn, respect his texts and not treat him like a disposable creature and just be fully in the moment. And more than anything to not misplay. And if I do misplay, really internalize that moment and remember why I misplayed and how I did it. I, I found myself when I picked up prison making the same mistakes repeatedly, but in sort of different scenarios and trying to zoom out and realize my bad practices. So even if I don't win or don't do great, I want to feel that I I lost because of things that were out of my control, not because I played poorly. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely, I think, should be my goal as well this weekend. One of the things... Though, Stan, I, I like that you mentioned is kind of like this concept of like fun and trying something new. And I think that that plays into deck making decisions for a lot of people too, right? And I think that, you know, you can get bored with the same thing you play all the time, you know, especially decks like Is It Phoenix that are trying to do very similar things, I think, every game, or Dredge tries to do very similar things every game. That can get kind of dull. And so when you have something new, something that you think can attack the, the metagame or attack people's knowledge of the format is what you're really doing Yeah, by playing something new. Like you're saying, like, I have something that is unexpected that unless you're doing a lot of reps on Magic Online, you probably haven't seen yet. So I'm going to throw you a curveball and, and see if it, you know, dips out of your strike when you swing the bat. So it dips out of your strike zone. That's kind of was in my mind thinking about uh, Esper Mentor, which is like, I just love casting the hand disruption i love casting monastery mentor and i, I want to have a deck where that card can do something but i just don't think it's the deck for me this weekend and and that's frustrating but i think that that's something that's even making me consider it is just the fun shane maybe that could be your sunday deck you know after yeah it's definitely going to be we're i'm definitely going to be you know sleeping that up and putting it in a deck box this weekend for sure so dave you have a, a personal story to share with us as well my angle on things, I think, is a little different right now just because I, I'm not sure if it's been apparent to people, to listeners, but I've been, uh, just from the way I've been talking on the podcast the last couple of months, but I've been struggling a little bit to kind of find a deck that I want to play in modern for a while now in, in a certain sense. And so um, I do a lot of sampling and switching decks and playing two, three, four leagues with a certain deck for the podcast to generate content, see what's going on. But I tend to put it down and just move on to something else from there. So as someone who used to have a pretty strong identity with a certain subset of decks in modern, which was basically kind of blue-red spells decks or Jeskai control, it's been kind of weird for me over the last month since the po It's been fun, but at the same time, it's been kind of weird because I feel like when I think of an event that I want to go to, like the MCQ, I really am at a bit of a loss of what I would take. And part of it is because um, I've played so many things recently, and part of it is because I've been doing very average with so many things lately. I feel like um, I definitely hit a peak where I was feeling really good about about playing in modern back in probably March when I was playing the Thalia Stompy deck, and I was really kind of kind of killing it with that across four four or five leagues that I played with it. Felt really good about it. Um, the problem is I don't have access to any of those cards that I can play, and um, so it's not really an option for me. And I also don't think 
that I particularly want to play that deck right now. And so I've been a little kind of like at sea as far as what I really enjoy playing right now. So it's it's hard for me to figure out what to choose. I also think that the leagues on on Magic Online have gotten harder since they um, yeah. since they combined them. And so there's been a little bit of a, even though the prizes are a little bit better, you know, if you get a free roll out of a 3-2, that's that's pretty good. And you get you even get more points now for a, a, a 2-3, for example, which helps. But it's been a little hard for me to feel like I'm getting positive traction on things when I just kind of feel a little outclassed by the players in the player pool and haven't totally adjusted to that. The other thing is, you know, I, I have a good amount of time to play Magic, but I also have, you know, I have a hard time going. I don't ever go to LGSs or anything like that. I really just kind of play Moto all the time. And so I haven't thought about playing anything beyond a league in months, in, you know. Years. Yeah, years probably. It's true, actually. So my short list of decks is actually pretty long. Like I originally was thinking I was probably going to play Hogak because I had some some doubts that it was going to be banned in time for this event, and turns out it, it was banned. Uh, I was playing that online a lot. I was pl- I've been playing Modern Red Phoenix a lot lately. Uh, Mardo Pyromancer and the bla- Red Black uh, Skelemental deck that Stan was talking about is kind of my are my three on the short list with kind of like a final curveball of blue white control. So I think that the Toby Hankey article from today actually, or that we talked about today actually gave me a lot of clarity or a lot of interest as far as the stuff yeah. that I should be considering, the stuff I should maybe not be considering at this point in time. Yeah. Data helps. It totally does. I mean, I'm not sure a hundred percent that I can go all the way with it, especially since the three decks that I have on my plate were very close to each other. I'm glad that they were all positive 50%, but let's, let's just talk about the couple of decks really quick. So we talked a bunch about the Skelemental uh, deck that Stan was got kind of inspired me to, to play. And um, it's funny, like, like Stan, I started off across a couple of leagues going six and two and then kind of paused for a day and came back and then ran, finished that league and ran back another one and went one and six in matches. So I was feeling like the deck was super strong. And then I went away for 24 hours and came back and all of a sudden I was like, whoa, variants got me. Did you have a similar experience with me in that you couldn't play the full shell of the deck because of, you know, the price of it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I felt like that was sort of punishing, but honestly, the stuff that I lost to was much more like I just lost to Karn over and over again. And I lost to the other thing I wanted to say about the Skelemental deck is that for some reason, it's not running any copies of like a Terminate at all. Like there's no, there's no destroy target creature effects that are just kind of like I can't kill a Gurmag, uh, a Gurmag Angler on the other side basically. And I only have two of them in the deck. So it's really hard for me to kind of interact with those. Um, so that I found that a little frustrating here and there that there wasn't at least a couple of pieces that I could use like that. Um, and then of course it was way more fully to graveyard hate than I thought it was going to be. And the, the one thing that I kept feeling over and over again, when I played the deck was I really, really like seasoned pyromancer. (laughs) And so I kind of think that um, what I'm going to do from here is switch back over to, to the Mardo Pyromancer deck again, because I actually really loved playing Mardo, Mardo Pyromancer originally. I had a good time playing it in the Sleeve Believe Heave episode and then seeing that it was a positive, uh, positive win percentage in Toby's article and also in the top eight of the MCQ makes me feel a little bit like maybe that's worth putting a little time in to see how it feels right now. Yeah, I think that 
I was surprised to see it have such a high win percentage. Like I know it's a powerful deck in in, in itself, but you know, Marty Pyromancer has been in the you know mid forties. I think any any time we see data about it, so to see something in the mid fifties for the new iteration is pretty significant. Yeah. I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, like you said, it's it's probably has a hard time with with Tron, Tron. Like we talked about before still. Um and so that's definitely a consideration. I, I think that the biggest thing for me though is, you know, um so that that's kind of one. And all of my decisions I think have been really informed by data as much as actual play goes. So I, I haven't been able to spend as much time with each of these decks, but I'm looking at different data points to figure out what I'm going to do with the next three days that I have between now and when we go, when we'll be in Denver to see if I can, that can help me make a, a choice. Dave, I want to hear kind of your consideration about Mono Red Phoenix though, because that's a deck that I'm considering as well, because I have played it. Um, I think when we were, maybe I just played it for a lark, but I remember us talking about it on an episode and I played it in the league. And also kind of comparing that to not necessarily the polar opposite, but a significant opposite in blue-white control. Yeah. So that's that's the thing that I think is really wild about the you know the decks that I'm talking about is that I basically have an aggro deck, a mid-range deck, and a control deck on my list right now. And I'm trying to decide which one of those I really want to play. And so, you know, if Maru Pyromancer is kind of one thing I'm considering, Monterey Phoenix is definitely on my on my radar right now, as it's a deck that I given that I don't have a ton of time for reps from here, um, it's definitely the positive thing about the Skelemental deck was that it was a really, really good aggro deck. And it just felt like maybe what I should do is go to an aggro deck that's a little more tried and true and just play that. And Monterey Phoenix has been very good to me in different iterations over the years. I've always, over the year, sorry, it's only been around for, what, eight months or so now. I've always had a little bit more success with it online than I have with the Is It version, even though I fully acknowledge that the Is It version is the better version, probably in the long run. I just think that Mono Red is is powerful. It's something that that I like playing. The lines are a little bit easier, and it can have these really explosive starts where you can just win on turn three you know, somewhat frequently, I think, honestly, with the deck. And it's not that people don't see it coming anymore, but it's often hard for them to to put together a plan to disrupt it. And, you know, I think one thing that that is interesting to me or that I'll, I'll be curious with Stan is like part of the reason I was interested in the Skelemental deck was I was interested a little bit in trying to draft a bit off of Stan's experience and what he was going to take into the event because he and I do tend to play similar decks or be interested in similar decks in a lot of ways. It yeah, is like peas and carrots. A, a little bit as far as deck selection goes. And, um, you know, so having somebody to talk with and maybe kind of like be on the same deck with over the weekend or even kind of, you know, do a league, bef- you know, while we're out in Denver online and stuff like that, just to chat about lines seemed like an attractive thing in the sense that I don't get to do that very much. And so it just seemed like kind of a fun thing to try. But I think that the Skelemental deck is out. It sounds like Stan is probably not going to play Mono Red Phoenix. We'll see. He's got his eyebrows raised right now. But that's part of the reason that that I was kind of thinking about those two decks as well, was just to kind of share the experience of trying to do well in the tournament with somebody else. And then finally, Blue White, Blue White Control, which is sort of like my kryptonite. <laughs> <laughs> Love that song. If I go crazy, then will you still call me Superman? It's the, yeah, it's the third door down is Blue White Control. <laughs> it's always there. 
singing this song. So I, it's sort of like one of these things where like every time I think I'm done with this, I, I fall back in. <laughs> I can't quit you, Blue Eye Control. It's so true, though, is that, you know, over the years, I started out wanting to play Jess Guy Control. I tried to play it for a long time in Modern before I picked up Kiki Jiki and started tr- messing around with that deck instead. Um, and then it's always kind of, Blue White's kind of always there. And I think Blue White's actually really good right now. And it was it's nice so to good. see that Toby's, um, Toby's article kind of backed that up. Dave, Blue White is really good right now. We have a pin that says never playing control again. I think we need to stay on brand. But really, more importantly, you have a rough day with blue white control. You're just going to spend five very long rounds <laughs> losing, right. slowly losing. Yeah. Like incre- incrementally losing a game until you're like, oh, poo, I got to concede. Yeah. So for, for your own mental health and just for us to have a fun party weekend, why do that to yourself? Live fast, die young. Live fast, die young. Well, so here, here's what I want to say, though, is that so the, the couple of data points that really put this back on my radar for me, and keep in mind, I haven't played Blue Eye Control in like since we did our Blue Eye Control episode, basically, like which is what, two, I think it might be closer to two months ago. So the thing is, if you look at, at the at Toby Hankey's breakdown by win percentage, the deck that I have with the best win percentage, I believe, is Blue Eye Control by a little bit over Mono Red Phoenix and then a little bit over Marty Pyromancer. The second thing is that, you know, again, we're recording on Tuesday night. I think I might have said Monday night a minute ago. It's Tuesday night. When I was playing Moto last night, the leader of the trophies in the modern oh, yeah. leagues is Doom Switch right yeah, now. Doom Switch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Doom Switch has been rocking as far as I know. Blue, I don't know if they're a streamer or, or, or who they are really, has been rocking blue eye control for the last couple of months, basically. Get at us, Doom Switch. Yeah, get at us, Doom Switch. If you're out there listening, we'd love to, to talk. Um, but also doing well in challenges and then also frequently posting 5-0s and leading the trophy leaderboard. And so it was a little bit of a light bulb for me, too, where I kind of went, huh, maybe I should take a look at, at their list. And kind of see where where that goes too. And it turns out I have all the cards for their list already, except for force and negation, basically. So, um, the the other thing I would say last here is that the decks I've lost to the most frustratingly, other than Hogak over the last couple of weeks, is uh, Karn the Great Creator decks. And mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure if the matchup with Blue Eye Control is is. Gr- good for blue eye control or not but the idea of having access to force force of negation is really attractive to me in a metagame where i uh i feel like i just want to be able to counter some stuff out of nowhere without having to try to think it through all the time yeah i mean you get to play force of negation and i've been seeing some lists with monastery mentor in the sideboard you get you get that fun that's in doom that's in uh doom switches list as well yeah of course yeah run that do it so, Dave, I sort of have a, a parting question for you, or, or my final question for you at the very least. Are you the kind of person who's going to, you know, wake up for your flight on Friday and pick the one deck and go? Or are you going to have all those decks in your suitcase and just decide the moment of the tournament? Uh, I will try to decide on Friday night will be what I will be doing. So I will have, I'm going to sleeve up all these decks and take them with me at the very least so that we can try to play them in sit and goes and 1v1 matches and stuff like that, like Shane said. But that's going to be what I'm carrying with me. And we'll just kind of see where it goes from there. Dave, do you think this is like an argument or an internal discussion, like data versus gut? Like, what do you think is kind of informing your decision the most? I think for me, it's probably more on the continuum of data versus enjoyment. Yeah. 
I, if I, maybe that's gut. I mean, I, I think given that I'm not really in a mindset where I think I'm going to spike the tournament and I really just want to have a bit of more of a learning experience, kind of like a little bit, kind of like a mini version of what we were talking about with Zach. It's probably me deciding which deck I want to play on magic, magic online the most going forward and sleeving that one up. Word. And, and you know what, honestly, if I put it in that context, the deck I probably want to play the most on magic online going forward is, is Mardu Pyromancer if it's good. And so, um, <laughs> You know, because blue eye control is really, really egregious to play online, and I've right. played tons of mono red phoenix, so I don't feel like a real yearning to continue to play that deck. Right, blue eye control is a buzzer beater every time. Here's the real burning question I have for you before we move on, though, Dave: Is how many fulminator mages can this deck run on the sideboard to prepare for the, all the Tron you're going to face in the London Mulligan? It's a great, great question. Um, I think I could probably. I'm looking at the MCQ list. I could probably swap out a couple things and get up to two or three. I'm surprised it doesn't run any right now, but anyway, that's just my, that would be my hot tech unearth of, of, uh, man, Fulminator Mage. Enjoy. Yes. I've definitely done it in the Skeletal deck too. All right. This was a fun skeletal conversation. I'm really hopeful that none of our listeners are paired up against us this weekend because they're just going to come totally prepared <laughs> and they're just going to blow us out. So uh, if, if you're a fan of the show and you're paired against us in one of these modern events, just let us know after you beat us because then our feelings will be improved. We're going to take a quick break and when we return, we're going to quickly address a listener question before time runs out. Stay with us. So one of the cool things about living in a big city like Chicago is we get to meet some of our fans sometimes. We have a lot of Magic players in the area, and one of our patrons who submitted this question is a local friend of myself and Zach. I know he's met Shane. I don't know if they're friends, but I'm sure they shook hands. And Joe wants to know, what are your feelings on the scheduling of Modern Horizons sandwiched between War of the Spark, an objectively powerful set, and core 20 the marker for a rotation and standard and i'll just address this first i I said this a lot over the last couple months i think a lot of people felt this way but it really felt like there was a spoiler fatigue going on um and it was just like really hard at times to assess what's good and what's impactful because every time i clicked on reddit or twitter there was just a new card that i had to evaluate yeah and i think that that gets really exhausting, right? With with uh, War of the Spark, there was a gap between War of the Spark and Modern Horizons, right? But then Core 20 comes out so soon and there's this, there's already this flurry of changes that people feel like they have to keep up with for, you know, mentally and financially. So I think it's hard to, you know, keep that focus um, on like the card pool and how to update your decks, you know, even for people like us. So this question is really interesting for me because I think it gets sort of to magic at a business level or magic at a selling product level. Because I feel like the whole thing with Modern Horizons was it was a gamble, right? They didn't know if the set would sell well. They didn't know if the set would be well-received, etc. So I think putting it so close between two sets is a way to hedge their bets. In case it doesn't work out so well, people aren't disappointed. It's not lingering on shelves, etc. And I think obviously it, people like it. It's been a pretty big impact on the format, etc. But I think where it was sandwiched was a way to make sure that it wasn't a total 
noticeable abysmal failure were it to be one. I think that's somewhat generous. I think that they just want to release as many products as possible because the goal is to sell sell cards, right? And to like, you know, generate some cash. Here's my my thought here is I mean, there's basically six sets every year now, right? Yeah. And you know, they printed one that was modern focused and it just happened. And um it's just kind of hitting the format really hard and making things change, but I I think that it's something that is just sort of the way magic works now is that, you know, we had four sets for a long time and then we had five and now we have six and it's, you know, I don't think they're going to go much farther than that. I hope, but um, you know, the impact has been surprising, especially because of the mechanics in war, the spark. And I think that's the thing that's really kind of rare and may, might not happen again. Yeah. I mean, I think typically we'd be happy if what, maybe like five cards from a set kind of see consistent modern play yeah, I did a quick count, and there's like 15 cards in War of the Spark that are seeing you know pretty regular modern play, and they're making they're making a really big impact on modern. They're not they're not like random sideboard cards. Yeah, Blast Zone, Karn, the you know Teferi Time Cop. There's Narset, and so I think you know people feel kind of a financial pressure in one way to keep up with uh, the decks they want to play and with the format's power level, and to sort of have that bang bang from you know, War of the Spark into Modern Horizons. You know, the the metagame feels an upheaval. Their their binders feel an upheaval. Their pocketbooks feel an upheaval. And I think that right. and and that feels a little bit overwhelming. I imagine for a lot of people. I I mean, honestly, I didn't buy certain Modern Horizons cards because I just spent so much money on War of the Spark cards. So I had to purposely limit my budget because I was already at my you know monthly budget for Magic cards. I totally respect that position. Budgeting is important for a hobby like Magic. But on the other hand, I think the fact that modern has been so dynamic and it almost feels like standard and like the rate at which decks are coming and going and technology is entering the format and, and changing what is viable and what isn't viable, Hogak aside, I think it's kind of an exciting time. And, you know, as Dave kind of suggested, like this might be a once in a lifetime moment. Who knows if we'll ever get into a, a point where it's like, for three or four months, like the modern format and eternal format just rapidly changes almost like week after week. Um, and let's say you're the type of player who only has the one deck that you've just been honing for several years, you know, like Zach with Scred and, or, and Mono Red for that matter. You know, it's not like you're buying 400 bucks. Like it's not like you have to buy a box or two every time a new set comes out. You know, you get you get the cards that may or may not go into it and if they don't work out, maybe you can trade them in, but I like budget aside, not everyone can afford that. Still being said, like I think it's kind of cool that there's so many avenues to explore right now and the spoiler fatigue that we experienced, like we got over it. Made for a lot of good content on the dive down. That is 100% true. All right, I'm excited once again to have the parting thought this week, and I'm going to wrap up the show. Thank you all for listening, and as we've said, if you're going to be in Denver this weekend at the GP or just hanging out, tweet us. Maybe we'll have a chance to meet a fan, play a game, shake a hand. I'm a hugger. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to The Dive Down wherever you listen to podcasts or on YouTube so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. 
feel free to send us a message there as well. Remember to join our Patreon if you'd like to support the show. And you can find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and spike a tourney! We haven't talked much about Plague Engineer either, but Plague Engineer is so good. It's so, so good. It's a $10 card now. It is? Oh, man. I didn't get to finish my playset. When, when do we start you, opening boxes of, of Modern Horizons? That's what I want to know, because I've not seen the price move yet on Sealed. I got, I got, I got you, Dave. Don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks. No, it's your fifth. Don't worry. Wow, Shane just flashed a Plague Engineer. A perfect pack fresh... It's as crisp as a cracker. Plague engineer.